0: All right, if you would turn in your Bibles to Daniel chapter 12, we find ourselves at journey's end for this series. Uh, some of you have said, "Good, um, I'm ready to move on to uh, something else." And so, uh, but it's been a good. I hope that it's been a good journey for you. I hope that what you have heard is that God is faithful and good in the midst of uncertain times, and more importantly, that Daniel really is about the fulfillment of prophecy more so than it is about any sort of kind of fantastical visions about the future. Having said that, we get to a fantastical vision about the future in the last chapter as he talks about uh, how all things will wrap up. And so as I transition into that, I do want to correct um, at least two things from last week, and I think there was a third. Um, it's always a dangerous thing when you say it's, it's, it's good to be wrong, right? I mean, being wrong is not the worst thing in the world because guess what you oftentimes get the opportunity to enjoy, whether or not that is in fact true. So so, there's two things that I quoted that I don't think were right. Um, And you may think, well, we can't trust you for anything. Yeah, that's actually right. You need to be brands. You need to be people who um, check these things for yourselves. Uh, And so you you need to be people who think, not people who just uh, receive in and don't critique and don't process and don't apply. All right. So first thing, Uh, I said that I think was wrong is I quoted um, uh, something and I I gave Augustine credit or Augustine credit and really I think it was Blaise Pascal who said it actually. I said that we have a a God-sized hole in our heart and we are constantly trying to shove things in there. Um, Augustine actually said we are actually, we we, um, search and long until we find our place in God. Those are very similar quotes. I think we'll live through that one. The other is, I said, that Super Bowl Sunday is oftentimes the day on which uh, there's the greatest reporting of uh, uh, abuse. My mother was an abused woman, and so it's a very sensitive subject for me, but that may in fact not be true, actually. The times that, that re- abuse gets reported the most around the holidays, which is even worse, and I wish I'd have said that because it would have made a more powerful point than the Super Bowl for many of you who couldn't care less if the Patriots are going to win again, uh, and so, so, uh, so I was wrong, okay? And I was probably wrong about a bunch of other stuff. I think I was kind of meaner to Philip than I needed to be. Uh, I think I was wrong about that. And there may be several others. Um, and I don't want to be dismissive of those things. And thank you for those of you who pointed those things out to me. You love me enough to come up and tell me, hey, you might be wrong about this. I don't care how much glee you took in it. Uh, I still appreciated it. And so, uh, so thank you for that. And, uh, and again, uh, it, it makes the point. You need to be a people who think. You need to be a people who critique. You need to be a people who don't swallow things wholesale. Um, We as Christians are supposed to be deep thinkers. Unfortunately, that's often not what we get portrayed as in culture and how we actually display ourselves. Uh, And remember, it is okay to be wrong. It won't be the end of the world. It really isn't. In fact, most of the good things we have started out as something else right? People were trying to actually accomplish something else, i.e. come to America. Uh, they weren't even trying to come here. They were trying to go somewhere else. Uh, but, but oftentimes it's mistakes that we find the richest things. And so don't fear being wrong. Don't fear getting into a discussion with someone. Don't fear hearing an alternative point of view. It's okay, Um, You will live through it, as I do every single week, (laughs) as it turns out. All right, so this morning we are turning our attention back to uh, Daniel chapter 12. This is the end of the story, and so we've covered a lot of ground in 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 the previous 11 chapters, and so don't lose sight of those 11 chapters. Don't forget what we've learned. One of the important points, if you remember from Daniel chapter 1, was that Daniel and his friends actually learned the culture. And, and it's and there are good things in all cultures. All culture is not inherently bad. There are bad things in, in every culture: bad processes, bad institutions, bad laws, bad politicians, bad uh, things of all kinds. But they were willing to to learn. Actually, Babylonian culture, which is very rich and beautiful in many respects. The only thing they were willing to push against was the food aspect of things because that had such a tie, if you remember, to Genesis chapter 1 and 2, and it reminded them of who and whose they are. It was an issue of wisdom. And as we, we journeyed through, we saw many times where Daniel and his friends came up against the empire and were willing to say, listen, we, we, we understand your position. But we will not bow the knee. God may or may not save us. And again and again, the Lord showed himself faithful, but that's not always the case. We have to remember, uh, as Christ asked in the garden, may this cup pass from me, and it didn't. And so, so we have seen God be good all this time. And we find ourselves at the end of what is a block vision. If you remember from chapter 10 all the way through chapter 12 is one, one long vision. And there's one person speaking for the majority of it who we've identified to be as not just any old heavenly visitor, but more importantly was the preincarnate Christ. He is ministering to... Daniel in the midst of what are some very difficult visions and you remember last week was filled with wars and rumors of wars and they're all civil wars and kingdoms and empires crumbling from within and from without And as we recognize as we were on the eve of the election um, we've been here before There's nothing new under the sun. Yes, there may be some new wrinkles as far as how much media coverage we have or how bold certain things may seem to be. But I remember, well, I don't remember because I wasn't alive. I almost had to apologize for something else. (laughs) But but if you've ever read the book, All the King's Men by Robert Penn Morin, um, that's about Huey Long. And Huey Long uh, was bombastic. He was Trump before Trump knew how to be Trump. He even said, don't vote for the other guy because you don't know how much money he's gonna take. You know how much I take. Right? So at least you have a stable thing here. And if you remember, or those of you who may know anything about his story, he actually was a legitimate challenge to Franklin Roosevelt. There's conspiracy theory that he had FDR had him killed. But I didn't say it was true, okay? Don't, don't quote me on that. But we've been here before. There's nothing new under the sun. Kingdoms rise and fall. Kings come and go. Queens come and go. But one thing remains. And and there needs to be some stability. And it should be our belief system. There should be a firm foundation on which we all stand. And that is the word of the Lord. Right? And so, so that's what we're seeing here from Daniel. Even in the midst of all of this upheaval. And don't forget, he dies in exile. He doesn't get to come home. And this will be the last thing that he hears from the Lord before uh, he finishes the race that he has run to this point. So um, uh, the thing that I would, I want to read a quote from Ian Duguid. Um, And then I have a question for you. Here's what he says. He says, our view of history is foundational to the way we live. How many of you believe that? Our view of history really—it really is foundational to the way we live. Either you're doing it actively or you're doing it passively. Somehow, some way, your view of history is affecting how you live. Now, oftentimes we think in kind of big picture, kind of meta-type ideas, but even local history, even personal history, all kinds of layers of history affect how you live. And as Christians, we are called to live not just as individuals and not just communally, but even with kind of broader and more well-thought, deeply, deeply thought through, deeply worked out worldviews. Would that that would be actually true of us. He says this as it goes on. If history is an assortment of random circumstances coming from nowhere and going nowhere, then faithful suffering has no possible meaning. It is a wasted life that could have been better spent on pursuing pleasure instead. But if history is actually following God's predetermined course to a final end, then our actions are filled with meaning. Any sacrifices that are demanded of us will be made more than worthwhile by our hope of glory on the last day when the dead shall rise. Now, how is your view of history affecting your understanding of the meaning and events of your life? a really good question for us to think through. I, I mean, I think that we, uh, for some of us, uh, are, are, we just wanted to get through the election as if everything were just going to calm down day one. For those of you who know about hashtag day one, and I have to do that now because I'm no longer on social media. You're free to be- misbehave because I can't see you anymore. I've departed and I never knew it as far as I'm concerned. And so, so I, I just had to, I just couldn't take anymore personally. And, and I really asked, the, the question was, was grounded in, um, is this making me a better person? Participating in this discourse either passively by just reading and fuming and cussing and spitting and, and punching stuff, is that making me a better person? Or even chiming in when I can't take it anymore with someone I barely have a relationship with who lives in Seattle, who I can't sit down with face-to-face and have no knowledge of them. Or Hiding them, unfollowing them, which is the subtle passive-aggressive way of getting rid of them without having the courage to unfriend them all the way, right? So it just was, it was it just for me, I, I just made the decision. And this is not, this doesn't make you more holy. In fact, it probably shows my weakness. Because as I told my my, my brother, I, I'm going to miss him. He was actually funny. Um, And so, uh, so, so it's just, it just, it just was, was too much. And so, so how is our view of history, how is it affecting how we live? How is it affecting the things that we care about? How is it affecting us as human beings? Is your view of history helping you to become a better human being? Is it in any way, shape, or form making your family or your community better? And I'm not talking about one of you that's essentially you whistling past the graveyard. No, I'm talking about one that's actually rich and robust And makes a difference and and, and actually helps make you a better person, a better human. And so so as we step into this, what we're going to see is Daniel's being given a vision for the end of history. And that is supposed to have an impact on him, how he lives now. So often our views of heaven and and things that we've heard, we're not going to be fat babies playing harps, sitting on clouds. No, there there will be an embodiedness to it, right? So as some people have said, you've yet to eat your best meal. That's, That's good news to me, by the way. You've yet to drink the best wine. That's good news to me, too. You've yet to see the most profound and heartbreaking sunset you will ever see. You've yet to explore the fullness of this earth. The earth will not be destroyed. It will be purified, it will be, it will be made new, and at long last we will be able to see it with eyes wide open and take it in in full. Remember, we see through a glass half-darkly now on our best day. Would that we would in humility recognize that. We can't see it all. And so Daniel's being given enough of a glimpse, and we too, so as to affect how we live between what's now and what is not yet. So if you would, turn with me to the scripture, and I'll read verses 1 through 4. At that time shall arise Michael, the great prince, who, is, who has charge of your people, and there shall be a time of trouble, such as has never been since there was a nation till that time. But at that time your people shall be delivered, everyone whose name shall be found written in the book. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, and some to shame and everlasting contempt." And those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the sky above, and those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever, but you, Daniel, shut up the words and seal the book until the time of the end. Many shall run to and fro, and knowledge shall increase. All right, as we step into this text, first of all, at that time is a reference back to verses 40 through 45 in chapter 11. If you remember, that was the discussion of the last Antichrist, the the one who would come at last to try to lay waste to the people of God. And if you remember, what was his end? He dies with no one to do anything for him. He basically dies alone, which is terrible, a terrible narrative, a terrible punctuation mark on anyone's life. Even the last Antichrist. And so it's at that time that Michael, the archangel, will arise. And any of you have any familiarity with the book of Revelation, this idea of churches having angels that watch over them, this is a known idea. And there are, and so in, in essence, what Daniel's being told is you have an angelic being that watches over you, watches over the people in exile, watches over the people of God as they endure things. And so it says, He will arise. At the same time that he arises, there will be trouble greater than the nation has ever known. There will be a time of trouble more than the people of God have ever seen in history, which is why this points us to the end. Any of you who've spent any time in the book of Revelation, a lot of this should sound familiar to you. It goes on to say that at that time, even though it will be the worst thing they've ever seen, they will be delivered. That's a promise from the Lord our God who is faithful and keeps his promises. And even those who have died, those who have gone on before, they will rise again. This is a passage that specifically points to the resurrection for us to to take our hope in, to find our hope in. That's why our assurance of pardon was Matthew 28. The resurrection of Christ is meaningful. If Christ dies on the cross and doesn't rise from the dead... As Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, we are the most foolish of all people in the world. We basically are wasting our time. Why? What are the wages of sin? Death, right? So if he doesn't rise from the dead, what does that make him? Guilty. That makes him just like you and I. That means he just lays in the grave. If if there is no resurrection, then there really is not much of a hope for us. We can... We can tidy this world up and make it a better place, but as we know, as the sweep of history comes and goes, somebody else is gonna come along and do with whatever you amass. They will do whatever they want with it. Even things that are passed on. How many stories do we hear of wonderful things that are built by the father only to be handed off to the son and it starts to begin to decline, only to be handed off to the grandson or granddaughter and starts to decline even further and Ends up being just wasted and done away with. That's a story written in history over and over and over again. It's not guaranteed always, but it's often the case. And so the resurrection, what's beautiful about the resurrection is that he uses the term they're asleep, which means that the resurrection is not going to be a disembodied experience. This is not dualism for those of you who are, are familiar with Greek thought. The Greeks basically thought the flesh was bad and you have to escape it. Much of our evangelical theology is the same. It's bad theology because it essentially says the things of the flesh are bad. Sex is bad. Is sex bad? No. It's a beautiful thing that is oftentimes horrifically distorted and destructive. Is our imagination bad? I hope not. I hope not, because our imagination is what allows us to create beautiful works of art, grand novels, poetry, songs, all kinds of things that make this world more beautiful than it was without them. And so, so often we have made the mistake of being far more Greek than biblical. Biblical. And so we often think that, that the resurrection is, is some sort of disembodied existence. Now, what will we look like? I hope better than now, me anyway, I, my hair hopefully will grow back or be flowing and beautiful. I don't know. I can put in a request, I suppose. But we'll be able to enjoy things as we never have before, right? I'm getting to the age now where certain foods just aren't as enjoyable as it used to be. And that saddens me. I love chicken wings. The hotter, the better. I love sausage. I can't hardly eat that stuff anymore. There will come a day when, I don't know if there's sausage in heaven or not. I hope there is. It's good stuff. Uh, and chicken wings too. Uh, but but there, there will come a day when at last again, we will be able to enjoy things without all of the boundaries and all of the restrictions and all of the disembodiedness that we worry about now. And that is compelling to me. And that is what, what, the heavenly visitor, Christ, pre incarnate, is saying to Daniel, There is coming, even though there's this, this period of grand difficulty and suffering between here and there, it is worth you sticking it out for. Because in the resurrection, in the resurrection, all things will be made new. And you at last will be able to enjoy them unfettered and undivided. Think about how divided we are, right? Why, why was this election such, such, so draining to us as a country? Because we are so horrifically divided. And we still are, by the way. That didn't get solved on Tuesday. Uh, in fact, I think it's going to get worse before it gets better. Um, but I hope I'm wrong about that, actually. That's one thing I hope I am wrong about. And so, so we have an opportunity to recognize that we're not trapped in that false binary. Um, um, We actually have a hope that is sure, and we don't have to panic. We can take our time. We can cultivate. We can take the long view because our view of history recognizes that there's a good, good end coming. And we do not have to be frantic. We don't have to divide now. We can hear what other people have to say. We can recognize that, yeah, I'm not sure I understand the whole safe space crying thing. But something's obviously moving you. Something obviously is, is challenging to you. And so that matters to me that you're hurting. For whatever that reason may be, I don't want to be just automatically dismissive. But there are some things that are just bad ideas too, by the way. And so he's being told the resurrection, the resurrection is your hope. The resurrection is the thing that will at long last set everything to right. The resurrection at long last is what will make all things new. And one of the distinctions is, is, he, is he speaks of the wise. He says the wise will shine as bright as the stars. So what does it mean to be wise from a biblical perspective? Well, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. What does it mean to fear the Lord? Does that mean to be scared of him because he's, he's, he's got bad breath or he's thunder and lightning or He's just? we should be afraid of him? No, fear actually in the, in the Hebrew mind means to respect, to have awe. And so what he is saying is that we recognize who we are and who he is. We recognize the creator-creature distinction. We recognize that there are things that we are called to do that just happen to be good for us not just arbitrary. That was the, one of the things I tried so hard with my children and failed miserably, at least to this point, to get them to understand is the things that I was, I was asking them to do or the things that were, were in some way constricting to them were not taking away their freedom, but actually garnering for them a greater freedom over the whole of their life. For those of you who wrestle with addiction in any way, shape, or form, you recognize it. yeah, it was fun on the front end, It was a blast. We didn't get into the, and I'm numbered among you, by the way. We didn't get into what we got into because it wasn't fun and it didn't feel good and it wasn't wasn't at least ripping and running for a second. But when you can't hold a job and you can't love your family and you can't feel what you ought to feel anymore naturally and you constantly need to assuage that, you constantly need something extra to even try to get moving anymore. That's not healthy. That's not freedom, as it turns out. And so for the things that the Lord calls for us to do, it's not to constrict us. And we again, as evangelicals, oftentimes have done the, the, made the mistake of just saying, God said it, that does it, now shut up. No, that, God gives all kind of explanation as to why. Yes, God said. But no, you shouldn't just shut up. Yes, you should think these things through. Yes, you should grow. Yes, you should know the why. We should take the time, again, because we have a sure hope. We don't have to be frantic. We don't have to be in a hurry. We don't even have to be right about everything. And so he's being told these things, and he's called to seal it up. Now, let me tell you what that means. That almost sounds like he's being told to hide it from people, and that's not what this means. To seal something up in this particular context means to ensure that future generations will be able to see it. So his job was to make sure that there were copies and that there were copies in places so that when the sword fell and everything was destroyed, there would be the opportunity for the word of the Lord to continue. So it wasn't that Daniel wasn't supposed to share these things in his current context. It's that he was to ensure that the word would continue in the best way that he could. So that's what that means in that context. So listen to what Brian Chapel says of this passage. He says, God has made known to us the blessings of his amazing design of past events and revealed his wondrous provision of future glory so that we can go our way with confidence, courage, and this last one I think is really important and often overlooked. Joy. Who are some of the most joyless people you've ever met in your life? Should not be us. It should not be us who proclaim a sure hope. It should not be us who are given such wisdom and insight and creativity and ability and calling. It should not be us. Please do not forget that joy is a critical aspect of your calling. Now, you can't manifest that. Let's not do the Joel Osteen plastered on grin type thing. Let it be real and let it be true but because you've put the time into it and cultivated your understanding. You've been a Berean. You have been close. Listen to what he also says. He says, he will rescue his people from distress. With resurrection, through judgment and for glory, his faithfulness through the distress will refine the wise, define the wicked, and deploy the faithful. So let me ask you, are you living as one who is wise according to the scriptures? What are you doing to cultivate what you believe? Are you, just, are you just listening and swallowing wholesale? Are you going based purely upon tradition that has felt good to you and is comfortable and doesn't shake your tree very much? Or are you pressing into that mystery? Are you, are you seeking to understand and have your life shaped by it to be truly transformed to actually do things that make you a better person in a world that desperately needs better people so are you living as one who is wise according to the scriptures let's turn back to the text verses five through seven it says then i daniel looked and behold two others stood One on this bank of the stream and one on that bank of the stream. And someone said to the man clothed in linen who was above the waters of the stream, How long shall it be till the end of these wonders? And I heard the man clothed in linen who was above the waters of the stream, he raised his right hand and his left hand upward toward heaven and swore by him who lives forever that it would be for a time, times, and a half time. And that when the shattering of the power of the holy people comes to an end, All these things would be finished. So Daniel sees two angels on the banks of the river and even they want to see all of this suffering come to an end. Even though they are heavenly beings and they're above the fray at some measure, even they don't enjoy watching year and decade and centuries of suffering. And so they say, how long till these wonders will end? And the man clothed in linen, who is the pre-incarnate Christ, Raises both hands, which is a full declaration, a full vow, which is as strong as a thing as you can do. When you raise both hands, you are declaring with all that you are that this is in fact true. And notice, he does not swear by himself. He swears by God alone, the Father. And remember, we've already been told this to some extent earlier in Daniel. And if you know anything about the book of Revelation, Revelation chapter 12, it's mentioned there as well. When the dragon makes war with the seed of the woman. And he's pouring out his fury. It will only be for a time, times and times and a half. And you would go, and maybe you're going. Somebody put that on a calendar for me. I need to see that. Well, I can't. But what it does mean is that it's a fixed time, and that it will not be ad infinitum, and that, and that, and that evil cannot just reign. We've actually seen this in part in history. Any of you know anything about World War II? How how did Hitler not keep going? Well, he made a few critical mistakes. Remember the Valkyrie plot, when they tried to blow him up and the construction of the table protected him and he saw that as the gods, actually he saw himself as a god, he took the clothing that was blown off of him, he was just standing in his underwear after his clothes blew off, and he took the clothing and made it into almost like a shroud of Turin. He had, you know, he's like selling it and having people look at it and touch it because it was obviously the clothing of a god. And yet, even he was stopped. Stalin, how did, how did that? And I, don't get me wrong, the numbers are staggering 12 million, 14 million, and more. But what kept them from going on and on and on? I've mentioned this in here before. If you know anything about D Day, if you've read the book, um, uh, The Longest Day, there's a moment when all those ships set sail from Britain, there's thousands of ships. And they get 20 miles off the coast, they have to turn around and go back, and no U-boat saw them. I don't understand that. And then they set sail the next night, and lo and behold, we had D-Day, which turned out to be very close to being a colossal disaster, in many respects. There was a whole bunch of Scottish people who fought like crazy. Thank God for the Scots, right? And Americans, too. But again and again, we've seen actually in history where, for whatever reason, evil could not continue any further than it did. Now, it doesn't explain why they were allowed to go as far as they did. Some of that we have to kind of examine ourselves. We have to examine what it is that we, we call for in, in, in the idols of safety and security. The people that were involved in those things put those people in power. It's tough to answer for. Which is why we need to be thoughtful and the things that we do and the things that we support and the, the things that we proclaim. And so what we know is that whatever suffering comes, it will be limited. Listen to what Dale Ralph Davis says of this. He says, the marvel of it all is that the shattered people has a God who shortens the days. A cross-centered God who knows the pains of his people and sets a limit to their distress. Lest we be tempted to doubt, Daniel's visitor gives us a two-handed oath so that misery is infected with certainty. And so don't miss that what it says is that there will be a shattering. I hate that, by the way, as I read that. I don't like that very much, but a shattering of the power of the holy people of God. Shattering doesn't sound very good. So what historical possibility do you fear the most? Right, some of it may be be just local type stuff. The historical possibility you fear the most is one of your children telling you something, a decision that they've made one way or the other. Maybe it's that you fear a diagnosis more than anything else. Maybe you fear whoever has come to power in either a local, national, or even global context. I I don't know if this is true, but I read this not long ago, that part of the reason that our highway systems were built and that they kind of blew up back in the 60s is so that we could escape better if there was a nuclear attack. That helped kind of drive the, the, the making of the highway systems. Now they're just ubiquitous. We just have them. And so so what is it that causes you to fear? What are you afraid of happening? And what would most, even more important, what would most comfort you in the midst of such an event? Right, if it was a diagnosis, if it was a child who shared something with you, if it was uh, uh, some sort of leader coming to power, if it was some sort of circumstance that befell you, what would comfort you? What foundation would you stand upon What would hold you fast? Where would your hope be? Let's turn back to the text to close out. As Daniel is called to remain faithful according to the promised resurrection. I heard but did not understand. Then I said, "Oh my Lord, what shall be the outcome of these things? He said, Go your way, Daniel. For the words are shut up and sealed until the time of the end. Many shall purify themselves and make themselves white and be refined. But the wicked shall act wickedly, and none of the wicked shall understand, but those who are wise shall understand. And from the time that the regular burnt offerings is taken away, and the abomination that makes desolate is set up, there shall be 1,290 days. Blessed is he who waits and arrives at 1,335 days, but go your way till the end. And you shall rest and shall stand in your allotted place at the end of days. Daniel struggles to comprehend what's being said. And if he struggles to comprehend what's being said, what should we in humility probably do? Be careful of what we say this means exactly and, and not press too hard on the parts that we don't necessarily understand and try to come up with dates and days as if we're somehow going to escape it. Right? There's been many novels and movies and shows written about knowing the day you're going to die. And it's strange what it does to us if we were to know that. And somehow for some people it quickens us and makes us live different. For some people they fall into despair. Here's the thing we're all going to die someday unless Jesus comes back sooner. And that should influence how we live now. There are things that really matter. There's lots of things that we're wasting our time and our energy on that we ought not. That aren't that aren't eternal, that aren't going to last. And so Daniel's being told, look, don't don't worry about this so much. Go your way. And go your way knowing that you will rest. That's good news. And you will stand in the resurrection in your allotted place, meaning God has determined your end and your rebeginning. And so Daniel is able to continue to endure what he has endured to this point based on the sure hope of the resurrection, even though there's much he doesn't understand. Listen to what Sinclair Ferguson says of this passage. He says, in light of the preview Daniel has been given of God's future purposes, his primary task, listen to this, is to live now. This is no pie-in-the-sky theology. This is no sit around and wait till God takes you home. He's to continue to live out that which will bring God glory right now. He's to be a good citizen of an exiled empire. He is to continue to do exactly what he was called to do and not spend all of his time worried about how it's going to end. He goes on to say, this is the constant application of all biblical eschatology. Now, eschatology is just a fancy word for how it ends. And so, so many of us, I think, have, um, on one hand, spent too much time thinking about how it will end and who's going to win and what that's going to look like because we fear it and we want to try to escape it. And then there's others of us who have totally avoided the book of Revelation and any sort of talk on end times. It's funny to hear when somebody brings it up and how the, the you know, this, suddenly this crowd opens up because people are scattering because they're like, oh man, nut job. Talking end times, I'm out of here. Doomsday prepper. And so and so, there's a sense at which we have robbed ourselves of an opportunity to to be assured. If many of you are honest, you, you don't go anywhere near the book of Revelation. It's funny because all of my addict friends, they all want to jump there first. I find that interesting. I kind of get it. But let me tell you about two resources I think that could help you. One is a book by Paul Gardner. He was... Uh, is still currently the pastor of Christ Church in Buckhead. He's written a very readable commentary that you could use. It's intended to be a devotional commentary. He's very wise and even-handed and doesn't get too far afield. He was Anglican, after all. He can't get too crazy. He became Presbyterian as if the screws weren't tight enough. And then there's also uh, a commentary by Derek Thomas, more devotional in nature, called Let's Study Revelation. It looks like it, it was made in the 80s. It really wasn't. Uh, it's a terrible title and terrible cover. But what's inside is good. And Derek is a very trusted and gifted man of, of, of the word and does a great job of handling it. These, neither one of these books are terribly long. And I would commend them to you for your own study because you need to know how this story ends. And that needs to give you hope. I had a wonderful conversation with my daughter who is at, at Tallahassee. And uh, we were talking yesterday about heaven and the new heavens and the new earth. And I was just sharing with her what it, what it will look like as far as what Scripture gives us. Which, by the way, Scripture doesn't give us a ton of information. Most of what we think we believe about heaven is, is uh, unfortunately, grossly distorted by bad theology and even worse television shows. No disrespect to Roma Downey. Uh, and, so, and so as we talked about it, she began to cry. And she said, Daddy, that... That sounds amazing to me. I said, sweetheart, it should. It should create a hope in us. It shouldn't make us want to hurry up and die. It should make us want to keep exploring and keep learning and keep growing so that it will be all the sweeter when we see what it looks like on the other side, when our eyes are all the way wide open at long last. So may we also be comforted by the resurrection. May we also be comforted by the finished work of Christ and what is to come. But that shouldn't, again, keep us from living now. If Daniel is any example to us, we must continue. So the three things that we need to take away from this are, one, God's people will be delivered to eternal life in the resurrection. That is a sure hope for you. Two, God vows to limit the duration of the shattering of the power of his people. That also is very good news. Three, we are to remain faithful and obedient between the historical now and the eventual not yet. Nothing changes. That's the beauty of what we're called to is we're not supposed to, as the times bounce and vary, we should be of all the most consistent and joyous people of all. Would that that would be what we were accused of. But we're frail, aren't we? And we sometimes get fearful and we sometimes go blind and we sometimes go deaf and we sometimes get overwhelmed and we're sometimes shattered individually. And sometimes we're shattered as a group of people. And that's the beauty of the ongoing means of grace. If the elders would go ahead and come forward, the beauty of the ongoing means of grace is that we have this consistent reminder of the sure hope that we have, that Christ in fact has risen from the dead and he is trampling over death by death. Now that doesn't mean that he doesn't care about those deaths. That doesn't mean he's disregarding those deaths. That means that they will not have the final say. There's a singer-songwriter who's written a song about what will one day be the last funeral. I look forward to that. I have aging, we have aging parents. And each Christmas, I think we all kind of wonder, is this the last? It's one of the few times we all come together. Or any moment that we have with them, we kind of ask, is this the last? And as far as the resurrection is concerned, the answer in large part is no. No, this will not be the last. There's better coming still. And beautifully, Christ wanted to make sure that we had a constant reminder. And so to his disciples, um, as he was preparing to go to the cross, and they were gathered round for that Passover meal, which would be the last Passover for him, and the first Lord's Supper for them, he took common elements because it was important for them to understand the tangibility and the simplicity of the kingdom. He took something like bread, something we deal with on a regular basis, and he, he said, I want you to recognize. He grabbed the bread and he said, this is my body and it's broken for you. It's such a strange concept to us. We're not terribly sacrificial people, but Christ was saying something profound. He was saying that, that he was going to bear the shattering. The ultimate shattering of sin and death. That's why we say, oh death, where is your sting? Hell, where is your victory? A quote from 1 Corinthians 15. Because in the broken body of Christ, the victory was declared over those things. And so as you receive the bread this morning, if you would hold it and just meditate on how um, that historical event has so transformed who you can be in the present. And how that freedom that you now have from shame and guilt, from the fear of death, and the fear of judgment, how that transforms you and how that may help make you into a better person in the midst of a world that needs, again, better people. Let me pray for this element. Father, thank you for the broken body of Christ. Thank you for the tangibility of the kingdom. Thank you for the deep truth that is, that is signed and sealed in this small piece of bread that a common element could hold such profound mystery that should help us because we are common elements. And yet we hold such profound mystery with the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. May you use this bread to nourish us in ways that we cannot even begin to imagine. God, help us be nourished to become better people who represent you in joy and glory and beauty and peace. In Christ's name, amen.